your Bibles, please turn in them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verse 11 as we continue in week 3 of our four-week series on the portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount known as the Lord's Prayer. And if you've not been with us, well, none of us were with us last weekend because we had to, we had to cancel due to the snow. But if you've not been with us the two weeks prior, here is why we're doing a series on prayer. Because most of us, if not all of us, would agree that Christians are to pray, right? And most of us, if not all of us, would have at least a general sense of how to pray, and yet most of us, if not all of us in one form or another, we would admit right here and right now that we struggle to pray. Maybe because we fear we're doing it wrong. Maybe because we lack the discipline. Maybe because we don't really think that prayer accomplishes anything. Now, if any of these are true for you, if they're true of us, we can be certain that these were true of the people who were gathered around Jesus on the mount as he delivered this sermon in Matthew chapter 5, which is precisely why Jesus took the time to teach them and by proxy to teach us what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us the pattern, the posture, and the purpose of prayer. We went over that just a little bit last time we met together. In the beginning of verse 9, Jesus addresses those of us who might not know how to pray or not, not be super confident in, in, in our own prayer model. He addresses us by giving us a pattern to follow. He says in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, pray then like this, follow this pattern. Our Father in heaven, you can follow along with me in your, in your Bibles, you can look, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's our verse this morning, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It gives us a pattern that we can follow. Now, this is certainly not the only way to pray, but it is a way. And it is a wonderful way at that. Because in this prayer are the combined elements of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication all into one succinct prayer. And so in the dark of the morning, before the sun has, has peaked up over the horizon, while your heart and your mind are still quiet, you can pray then like this. It's, it's quick, but it's thorough. In the busyness of your day, while you're scarfing down your lunch and, and, and stress is kicking into overdrive, you can pause and you can take a really big, deep breath and you can pray then like this. According to the pattern that Jesus gives us, he lays it out for us right here. 
And for those of us who lack the discipline to, to get up and, and pray or, or to stop in the middle of busyness and stress and, and, and pray, just look at the posture of prayer that Jesus models. The, the posture that he models for us actually informs a bit of our motivation as to why we pray in the first place. He begins by teaching us to address God as our Father. Our Father in heaven. Yes, it's true. God is our creator. Yep. He is our sustainer. He's a sustainer of all life. That is true. But for Christians, hallelujah, he is also our heavenly Father. Because we have been united with his son Jesus by faith. By believing that Jesus' death and resurrection has secured our forgiveness and restored us to right relationship with God. If you trust Jesus for your forgiveness and restoration, the Father sees you as he sees Christ. He sees you as his son. He sees you as his daughter. No longer are we orphaned and alienated because of our sin. We've been adopted through the, through the work of the son back to our father. And because we've been restored to our father, we can come to him in prayer any time. Rain or shine. We can come to him with anything. Praises, worries, doubts, fears, failures, even the worst of failures, we can come to him and tell him. We can come to him as we are. We can come to him in our true selves when we pray. And we can be confident that he hears us. We can know because of Christ, that he hears us. Talk about motivation to pray. The God of the universe has turned his ear toward his people. And when we pray, things change. God doesn't change. He never does. Ever, 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 ever. But things do according to God's sovereign and eternal will. He has ordained certain things to come to pass through prayer. That's the way he's chosen to do it. If you don't believe me, read the book of Joshua, read the book of Isaiah, read the book of Acts, the infinite amount of times when it says, and when they prayed this. We don't change God, but prayer changes things. Prayer absolutely changes things. Let this posture of confidence be a little bit of a motivator if you lack the discipline to pray. But this posture of confidence, because God is our Father, in entering in to speak with our Father, let us never allow our confidence to degrade into a glibness or an arrogance. We can be confident when we pray, but we must be reverent. 
He is the God whose name is hallowed. His name is higher than any other. His power is greater than any other. His rule extends farther than any other. He is the eternal triune Alpha Omega and his name will be regarded as holy. When we pray the words, hallowed be your name, we are asking the Father to make his name holy in our hearts. That we would revere him rightly. Can you even imagine, imagine with me, can you imagine what God might do in this church if you and I every day were to beg him, make your name hallowed in my heart. A church with a proper regard for God's holiness, impenetrable to the forces of darkness. The gates of hell would not even prevail. Not only does the Lord's Prayer show us the pattern and the posture of prayer, it also shows us the purpose. Do we remember this? Shows us the purpose of prayer. I love uh, alliteration, three Ps. Makes it easy for note-taking. Jesus made clear in verse 5 that the purpose of prayer is not, what? To draw attention to ourselves. It's not about proving our devotion to God to those around us. That's what the Pharisees would often do, remember? As we saw in verse 7, the purpose of prayer is not to earn God's approval. It's not about trying to impress God with our super long prayers or our, our, our super spiritual words. That's what the pagan Gentiles were all about. And when we do that, when we pray to try and impress God, we are completely forgetting the good news, aren't we? That God has already wholly and fully accepted us because of Jesus. There's no proving. There's nothing to earn. (laughs) Amen, Craig. We don't pray to impress God. Uh, Dudes, how would we impress the one who dwells in utter perfection anyway? What could we say that would impress the one who knows the critical mass of every rain cloud? What could we possibly say to the one who, who formulated musical theory? He came up with it. Or, or who envisioned every hue of the color spectrum. What am I going to say to get his attention? And yet I try to do it all the time. I try to somehow impress him. I try to somehow impress. We we, we don't impress the infinitely wise and wonderful and unimaginably ingenious creator God of the universe. And moving forward, we certainly don't pray in order to convince him to do our will. I mean, why on earth would we want to convince Such a God to do anything based on our finite understanding. When his name is rightly hallowed 
in our hearts, we begin to rightly distrust our own judgments of how things ought to be done in our lives. And when his name is rightly hallowed, we start to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Do we see the logical flow to the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom, your will, oh hallowed God, not mine. I am recognizing how finite my vantage point is. I am I'm recognizing how how tainted my motives are. My motives are all over the place. Your will be done. Thus, the purpose of prayer, as Jesus showed us in verse 10, is not to align God's will to ours, but our will with God's. That is the purpose of prayer. We pray to be aligned with the King. And that sounds something like this. Lord, I think it would be best if you healed my friend of his cancer. And that's what I want. And I'm asking you for it. Lord, I think it would be best if you allowed me this new job opportunity. I think it would be best. I think it would be best if my kid came to faith in Christ right now. I think that would be best. I'm asking you for it, but I also recognize that my perspective is limited and that you are infinitely wise and wonderful and you promise that even the calamities of my life will turn out for my ultimate good and therefore your will be done. Not mine. I trust you, Lord. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we trust him enough to pray like that. Is his name hallowed in our hearts to the extent that we will hang our entire life on those words? Your will be done. We could add a fourth P if we wanted. It would be defensible by scripture. We could, we could add the payoff of prayer. When we are able to pray and to wholly wrap our hearts around God's will, not ours being done, the peace that surpasses all understanding invades us. When we are able to get to the place, even in something that we crave, we're salivating, for our kid to know Jesus. When we're able to pray, nevertheless, your will, your timing be done, you will be invaded with peace. Because you're no longer fighting for some semblance of control. You're, you're relinquishing. He has it all. And his ways are good. And his timing is perfect. The purpose of prayer is to get us to this place that I've just described. Where God's priorities become our priorities. 
when his passions, when his desires become our desires, the purpose of prayer is to get us to this place where we learn to depend on him for everything, delight in him above everything else, and demonstrate his goodness to the world. If you've ever wondered for one second in your life what God's will is for your life, that is his will. Jesus outlines it in the rest of the of this passage, the Lord's Prayer, that we would depend on him for everything. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That we would delight in him above everything else. Verse 13, don't lead us into temptation. Don't let us settle for lesser joy. Don't let us settle for lesser delights than the king who is above all kings. And that we would demonstrate his goodness to the world. Verse 12, forgive us, Lord. Pour out your grace upon us while we pour out your grace upon everyone around us. So we're not going to obviously look at verses 12 and 13 today. We're only looking at one verse today, verse 11. And in the short time that we have left, we're going to consider one thought, one point based on this verse. Give us this day our daily bread. If I could rename rename the, the, the title of this sermon on our bulletins, it would be depending on God for everything. Because that is the meaning of this verse. In one word, in one, in one sentence. God wants us to depend on him for everything. God's will is that we would depend on him to supply for us our every meal, our every glass of water, our every article of clothing, our every material need, and there's even more. We'll get to that soon. And we know that that's what is in view in this verse because Jesus expounds upon this idea just a few verses later in verse 25. Look down with me. He says, don't be anxious about these things, food and clothing and water. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat or what you drink or what you put on your body. Verse 30, if God clothes the grass, will he not much more clothe you? So does any one of us have a genuine need this morning? God wants you to ask him for it. Now, we're the princes and princesses of getting our needs and wants mixed up. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we've been benevolent to somebody who's in dire need who has a nicer cell phone than I do. Right? I'm not trying to make a mockery. I, I'm simply stating we have our priorities all over the place here in America land. But if you have a genuine need today, God wants you to ask him for it. He wants to provide it for you. What about your next meal? God's will is that you would depend on him and that I would depend on him to supply it. Isn't it interesting that Jesus does not teach us to thank God for our daily bread? 
but to ask God for our daily bread. There's a whole world packed into that. Because when we ask, we are acknowledging that we have a need that only he can supply. When we ask, we're acknowledging that we have a need that only he can supply. In the hearts of, in, in, in the hearts of God's people, thankfulness, thankfulness will follow that provision. It, it will. In the hearts of God's people, his provision will turn to praise in our lives. He will get that out of us. But there is something about asking. It's the reason why Jesus teaches us to ask for our daily bread. There's something about asking that precedes and even pre-demonstrates gratitude. Pre-demonstrates is not a word. I made it up. There is something about asking, though, that pre-demonstrates a thankful heart. I'll give you an illustration. I'm the person who hands out the candy during trick-or-treat night at our house. Unless it's raining, and then all of a sudden I'm tasked with walking around with my kids. Lindsay's like, amen. I've noticed something over the the past few years. Kids don't even say trick-or-treat anymore. They don't. They, They don't, when they come to my house, it drives me crazy. They hold open their bags and they stare at me as if I am somehow obligated to put candy inside. Do you, does this happen to you? I get all in like a, like a tiff. Like, oh, here comes another ungrateful, you know, a, a, a pre non-demonstrative gratitude, you know, whatever. Like I'm, I'm like philosophizing everything. You know, the skeleton comes up and he just stares at me. I'm judging him like every bone. <laughs> now, in a, in a fairly significant way, this is how we treat God when we fail to ask him for our material necessities. By not asking, aren't we in a way presuming upon his provision? Holding the basket open. By not asking, aren't we in a way assuming that our needs are just going to be met? Now, some call this faith. Some call this confidence. Some call it assurance. I think it's more accurately called entitlement. And this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. As I read through verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And as I began, by God's grace, to unpack a bit, just a fraction of its meaning in my own mind, it hit me. I don't know that I have ever truly asked God for my daily bread. I don't know that I've ever asked him to actually supply a meal for me or a glass of water. I've thanked him for countless thousands of meals, but I don't think I've ever knowingly, consciously depended on him for one. And one reason why I'm thinking that this is so is because I guess I've never quite matured out of the carnal sense of entitlement 
that was passed down to me by my first parents, Adam and Eve, who flippantly took and ate from the tree of knowledge as if they were owed its fruit. As if God how were somehow obligated to give it to them. Now, P.S., as an aside, our creaturely dependence on God is not a result of the fall. The fact that we have to depend on God or we ought to depend on God is not a result of sin, not a result of our rebellion. God created us to be dependent on him not to keep us coming to him for things that give us life, primarily, but to keep us coming to him because he is life. Another reason why I don't think I've ever knowingly, consciously depended on God for my daily bread And maybe you can relate to this. Another reason is because I think I have allowed my heart to be conditioned more by the ideals of the American dream than I have this Lord's prayer. If there was a declaration that could describe my heart mostly, it would be a declaration of independence rather than dependence. And I'm not slamming the Declaration of Independence. I, I, it's an illustration. I love this country. Don't, I don't want your emails. <laughs> but in our country, in this era especially, dependence, is it not viewed as a failure to a degree? Independence is lauded as a success. It's a, it is a virtue. I mean, isn't the core reason why many of us go to college and try to land the best jobs ultimately because we're trying to avoid need? Need is uncomfortable. Need reminds me that I, I'm not the king. Think about all the decisions that we tend to make as Americans. Again, not slamming America. Think of all the seminars we go to, all the books we read about investments and and strategies and retirement, this, that, and the other. Is not the goal to build up our wealth in such a way that we're freed from praying, verse 11? Jesus, save me. And oh, that we would see that this passage is about so much more than food. Jesus' logic would seem to go that, that those who learn to depend on him for basic material needs, will more readily depend on him for their greater spiritual need. Our greater, greatest spiritual need 
is that it's our independence that got us into the problem to begin with. Our greatest spiritual need is to be cleansed of our disobedience toward him, to be captured and and, and brought back from our running away from him, It's to be brought back into a state of blissful and wonderful dependence on the God who designed us to receive life from him. If we don't depend on God for the bread of the day, how can we possibly expect to depend on God for the bread of life? It's just bread. How easy ought it be for us to completely rely on him? Three times a day, if that's your eating schedule. But if we can't do that, no wonder the church is so crippled by pharisaical works righteousness in the church where we are trying to earn in a state of independence, the bread of life that can only be given to those who are dependent on God. I heard Ray Ortland preach this. It's a very simple quote. Dependence is our only asset. It is the only thing that we have because the only requirement for entry into the kingdom of heaven is need. But if we are needless in every other area of life, no wonder we have such a hard time coming in here and saying, I need, I am a sinner. Forgive me. No wonder when we receive such forgiveness in our open trick-or-treat bags, worship is so boring. Oftentimes in the American church, we're really not that grateful. We're really not that blown away by what we've received because we were kind of owed it anyway. We're good people after all. Another sermon title could be the Declaration of Dependence. I kind of like that. That'll be a tattoo for me later. You guys don't have to do that. Isn't it just crazy? And isn't it just an apologetic for the validity of Christianity among other world religions? You don't have to be, look, among all of the other world religions, if you're searching, how distinctly and wonderfully different is it that the God of heaven, Yahweh himself, does not require his followers to escalate up to him He simply asks that they be needy and he comes down to save them. As I thought about the ramifications for this little verse, give us this day our daily bread. I I wanted to start trying something in in my own home um, that, that maybe you'll do the same. 
just as a way of just some kind of almost practical application. What if we started praying? You know, when we sit down to thank God for our meal around the table with our family, what if we did thank God for the food that was in front of us and then immediately asked, Lord, if you snap your finger, all of the surplus and excess in my fridge will rot up like that. Would you please provide our next meal? That was one idea. I also want to start praying Proverbs 38 and 9 a lot more. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I um, once read the story of John Wesley, uh, an 18th century uh, traveling pastor and theologian. Um, He started off his ministry making 30 pounds a year. And he figured by the end of that year that he could live off of 28 pounds a year. And he had everything he needed. And he committed himself before his brothers that would travel around him, he made a covenant, so to speak, with them. And he said, as my ministry grows in influence, he was writing a lot, he was preaching a lot. Money is made when somebody gets a little bit famous, right? He started to gain notoriety. He got up to the place of making 1,400 pounds a year in comparison to the 30. He made a pact with his brothers around him. He said, never let me take from my personal pay more than 28 pounds a year, no matter what happens. He capped himself off because he could live off of it. And every year for the remainder of his ministry, he gave everything else away. That is radical. But that is also what the writer of Proverbs 30 is really getting at. Don't give me poverty, Lord, lest I steal. But don't give me all of this wealth and surplus and excess that seduces me into thinking that I don't really need you as much as I do. Because when we're seduced into thinking with our material needs that we don't need them as much as we really do, again, no wonder... This heart right here struggles so much with the idea of salvific grace. I don't think that I need all of that grace. I can do some of it. Right? And all of a sudden my worship starts to be drained of gratitude because I feel like I've kind of helped the Lord. Another suggestion and another way that I'm praying through this passage you guys, how, how do we deal with the reality that is tremendous abundance in America? How do we deal with it rightly? One way is to do what John Wesley did and to be a radical giver. I'm not talking to me. I'm talk, talking about giving it to me like the preacher man on TV would have you do. He's a charlatan, by the way. 
I'm not even talking about giving it all to this church. I'm talking about people who genuinely need. Because their prayer, give us this day our daily bread, could very well be sovereignly by God answered them by your giving. Because the point of this passage, verse 11, is that God's will for our lives, you could move to Idaho, California, you could stay here, you could go to Ashland, don't do that, there are enemies. It's, we, we, we think of the will of God for my life and we become instantly obsessed with, well, does that job pay enough in, the, in this, that, and it? No. God's will for your life as far as you're concerned right now, is that you would be dependent on him for everything. And the three times a day daily bread, what a blessed three times a day reminder to come to ask for provision And to ask that the sweet bread of life who is Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, would continue his work of nourishing us until that day.